So I think I speak for all of us when we say, Ed, we thank you and love you for showing your heart. And I, I just want to say uh, to everyone in our congregation that what Ed has just shown there through the, his prayer and the love and how much we miss you, he is he's giving all of the elders hearts. I mean, that is part of what we were doing on the weekend is just the part of the lament that, that the body is not together. So thank you. Thank you for that. Let's take our scriptures and open them, won't we, to uh, Matthew. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13 in chapter 9. Before we begin, let's uh, bow and pray together. Father, your word that you have preserved for us is deep. Although we will be looking at such, so few verses of it, to plummet, we, we haven't even gone halfway through. Lord, we love your word. We cherish it. Now, Spirit, just use it to mold us and shape us, challenge us, and encourage us. Use it, Lord, to give us a taste that we want more of it and more of it. Let it be as honey in our mouths this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Names of God. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of them. Names of Jesus. Dozens and dozens and dozens of them. I wonder if, if you can recall maybe some of your favorites that you have, have uh, taken into your heart over the years. Each of them describes a different aspect of who Jesus is. John calls Jesus the Alpha and the Omega, calling to mind his eternality, his, that thing that we cannot get our minds around, which is he has no beginning and no end. Lord, are we, the psalmist calls you the chief cornerstone, that thing that we orient our life around. Isaiah foreshadows Jesus' incarnation by calling him Emmanuel, God among us, God with us, God tabernacling with us. Paul calls him the rock, alluding to his faithfulness, his dependability that we can go to him. John the Baptist pointed, if you remember, and said, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, foreshadowing his death. His substitutionary death. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus himself got, uh, gives himself three sobriquets. Earlier in chapter 8, we saw that he called himself the Son of Man. Right? Recalling that Daniel 7 passage in which he is he's calling himself co-equal with God in power and, and authority and glory. The very next passage we're going to look at next week, he calls himself the bridegroom, giving him us an understanding of our correct position 
as his bride. But here and among other places in our text today, we get the sobriquet, the great physician. Jesus is the great physician because it describes the ultimate work that he does in our life. The healing of that deadly poison that courses through each of our veins. The deadly poison of sin. Look with me at verses 9 through 13. The word of God says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Uh, we've been making our way through the unit in Matthew that starts in chapter 5 and will end at the end of this chapter in chapter 9. And they're all held together by a common theme, and that is the authority of Jesus. What Matthew is doing is he is, he is firmly rooting us in who Jesus is and his authority. In, first, in chapters 5, 6, and 7, as you recall, the, the Sermon on the Mount that we call, he is, he, tell, he is showing us that he has authority to teach, the authority of God to teach. In chapters 8 and 9, what Matthew is doing is putting on full display his divine authority. We've already seen this divine authority manifest in several ways. Over disease, by him curing of the, of the leper and of the centurion's servant and of Peter's mother-in-law. Over nature, when he calmed the storm. In the spiritual realm, as he forced the, the demons out of those two men. And last week... He has the authority to forgive sin, as, as you remember how Pastor Wes beautifully presented that to us. He's the power to forgive sin. He has the authority to forgive sin. So if the previous section shows Jesus' authority to forgive, Matthew here follows that up in our text today with showing Jesus' desire to sin, to, to heal us. His heart, if you will, to forgive sin, to heal to cure. Because that's all what all great physicians do, right? They, they not only have the ability, but they also have the desire. I mean, if you've ever had a doctor that you, that you really loved, he had a good bedside manner, right? That's the heart that you're feeling. Or if you've ever had a doctor that didn't have a good bedside manner, you know what that feels like too. Maybe he's very, very good ability-wise, but you don't feel as if he's really caring for you. They say they come in and they they come in and they heal, they they talk to you specifically about your disease, but not talking to you. They give you the facts, they're kind of cold, distant, detached. But all true great physicians have the heart, don't they? 
they care not only about the cure, but about the person. And that's what we see here with Jesus in two ways in our text today. Jesus shows that he's the great physician by coming to us, first of all. He shows that he has the heart by coming to us. Jesus, the great physician, comes to us. Great physicians make house calls. Well, maybe not anymore. I don't know. Last time I can remember a house call, or maybe you, but they used to. They used, if you were too sick to go to them, they would come to you. They made house calls. And that's what we see here in verse 9. If you look at verse 9, we read, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now here, and in the parallel passages in Mark 2 and Luke 5, we see it fleshed out a little. Crowds were surrounding Jesus. We don't see that here in Matthew, but crowds were surrounding him. He was teaching and he was traveling. And you can imagine, if you, can, if you will, these great crowds that were surrounding him. And you can imagine that they were asking him questions and trying to get his attention. Maybe asking him, come, come to my house and heal. My daughter, my father, my husband is sick. They're trying to get close to him. They're wanting his attention. Everybody was wanting his attention except one person. Way off in the distance, he sees a person sitting in a booth. Not trying to get to him. And Jesus sees him sitting on his stool and he makes his way over to him and he says those two irresistible words. Follow me. First, Second Timothy 1.9 says, Jesus saves us and called us to a holy calling. God calls us. He comes and he calls us. I think we can observe two things by, by Matthew's calling here. First, we can see that God's call is a sovereign call. It's a sovereignly irresistible call. When God calls you, you cannot resist it. Have you ever thought, stopped to think about how he calls his disciples in the Gospels? It's really like this. In John chapter 2, when he sees Philip, what does he say to him? Follow me. And Philip follows. Back in Matthew 4, we saw that he saw Peter and Andrew, and what did he say to them? Come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they stopped everything and followed. And here Matthew does the same thing. Drops everything. I mean, tax collecting was a really lucrative position. There are people lined up to take Matthew's spot. And he leaves everything and follows Jesus. He doesn't give a case for following him. Jesus doesn't winsomely persuade. He just sovereignly, irresistibly calls you to follow him. But there's another observation here. And I think that this, this is timely for where we are in Advent, and that is that Jesus came to Matthew. Jesus came to Matthew. Like a great physician making house calls, he made his way through the crowd to Matthew. And that's important for us to ponder this time of year. God coming to us, right? 
That's the whole meaning of Christmas. That's why we light these candles. That's why we take weeks and weeks ahead of this so that we are pondering what God did in the incarnation. It's pretty amazing. God coming to us. Look at verse 13. He says it even here. For I came, not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came. God is telling Matthew and the, and the people around the table, I came for you. God made his way from heaven to earth. That's why this time of year is such a big deal. At Christmas time, we should take a lot of time to ponder what God has done by coming. These candles help us remember that. Last week we read from Job 19, My Redeemer lives. Helps us remember that that Jesus is eternal. But he came in the flesh and entered into time. This year, this, this week, the Litchfields read Deuteronomy 18. That God was, is going to come like a prophet, like the prophet Moses. Right? Speaking the very words of God. Leading his people. I mean, when he says, follow me, Matthew, it's, it's like following Moses. Through the Red Sea, into the wilderness, eventually to the promised land. Josh McDowell, in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, lists out 351 prophecies of this God coming to earth, becoming man, to prepare us for the greatest event in history. Jonathan Edwards writes this, Christ's incarnation was a greater and more wonderful thing than had ever yet come to pass. The creation of the world was a very great thing, but not so great as the incarnation of Christ. He goes on to say this, it was a great thing for God to make the creature, but not so great as the creature, the creator himself becoming the creature. Let's stop and consider what Edwards is saying here for a moment. The, the incarnation, what we're celebrating, what we're thinking about this time of year, is greater than God creating the universe. What he's saying is Luke 2, that wonderful Christmas birth narrative, is greater than Genesis 1. He's also saying that Luke 2 is is greater than Genesis 2, where he creates man. And we can ponder it a little further and say perhaps that Luke 2 is greater than even Genesis 3, the fall of man. Because by only by becoming one of us could he reverse that curse that happened in Genesis 3 and show us safely a way to home. It's a story of a farmer whose wife was a devout believer, but, but he was not. They had a great relationship except in one area, And that is that he kind of ridiculed his wife for being a Christian, for believing. One Christmas Eve, she was taking the kids to church and she pleaded with him to come yet again. 
Frustrated, he turned to her and said, why would God ever lower himself and become a human like us? That's such a ridiculous story. They left, and a surprise snowstorm moved in, and as he sat down to relax at the fireplace, he heard a thump against a window, and then another thump. So he got out, and he looked out the window, and there, to his surprise, in the snowstorm was a flock of geese in his yard. He thought, what a strange sight, so he went out there, and he found that they were caught in a snowstorm. Nowhere to go. His heart was touched, because... If they didn't find any shelter soon, they would die. So he went outside and opened the doors to his barn, hoping that they would see the safety that he had provided for them and move in. They didn't. They just fluttered around aimlessly. So he started whistling and calling and shooing them in the direction of the barn. But they didn't get the message then either. He moved closer to them, trying to get their attention and direct them in the direction of safety. But the more he kind of got closer, the more they moved away. He even went in and got bread and he he made a bread line into the barn. And they didn't, didn't follow it. He paused his efforts and thought, how can I possibly, possibly save these geese? If only I could become one of them and communicate to them the direction of safety. Then I could save them. They would follow me and not fear me. They would trust me. At that moment, the words he had said to his wife rushed back into his mind. Why would God ever lower himself to become a human like us that's ridiculous he understood the incarnation for the first time we're like geese blind gone astray in danger and perishing and God became one of us so that he could say Follow me. And we'd follow. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Verse 13 says, I came to call sinners. He came to call Matthew by saying, Follow me to safety. The great physician came from heaven to earth to save us from perishing. That's the reason he came in the flesh live and to die a sacrificial death on the cross to absorb the penalty that we deserve for our sin to take the full wrath of God in his body to rise on the third day to give us a way out of certain death to eternal life Secondly, we see Jesus as the great physician in that he heals people who realize they are sick. He heals people who realize they are sick. Jesus heals sinners. In these short four verses here, we actually see two people groups represented. 
those who don't know they're sick and those who do. First, we see those who don't know they are sick. These are represented by the Pharisees in our text. Matthew was so overjoyed with Jesus that he wanted to to share what he found. So what he did is he went out and he, he threw a dinner party and he invited his friends. And Matthew's friends were just like him. Tax collectors and egregious sinners. And the religious elite stood at a distance and saw this and asked why his disciples, why does your teacher eat with people such as this? Why does he associate with them? Eating was a, was a way of, of fellowshipping and accepting somebody. They were saying, why is, is he accepting this type of person? Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? The missionary C.T. Studd once wrote, some people want to live within the sound of a church bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That's Jesus' motto too. He came to call not the righteous but sinners. And where else better to be than among them here on earth? Not so with the Pharisees. The Pharisees saw these unclean sinners as contaminating and contaminating them if they got too close. So they separated themselves. They saw themselves as different. They saw themselves as better. The Pharisees saw themselves as righteous and them unrighteous. They they felt no need when they saw Jesus. Thus, they stood at a distance from Christ And brothers and sisters, that's what self-righteousness does. It puts you at a distance from your Savior. These Pharisees knew and followed the law. They tithed and made proper sacrifices. They, They viewed people in two categories, if you will. Us and them. And when Jesus heard that they asked, he challenged their thinking by saying, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he challenged them and he said, Pharisees, go and learn what this means. And he quotes from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, and says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This seems to be one of Jesus' favorite verses from the Old Testament because he uses it again and again and again in his ministry. It's a very interesting chapter. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn back there to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea is the first of the minor prophets, if you will. So if you go to your Old Testament and you hit the major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, keep going, Ezekiel, keep going from that, Daniel, and right after Daniel is Hosea. The prophet Hosea was called to condemn the false and formal religion of the day. He called the Jews out by claiming that they were just going through the motions of religion and not really dealing with their hearts. Having an exterior religion, if you will. In Hosea 6, we'll start reading in verse 1. 
God's word says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, and we, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out, going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers and the springs rains and water the earth. What shall I do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Most of our Bibles there have a title above it. That section that reads, Israel and Judah are unrepentant, or something like that in your Bible. However, if you look at the first couple verses, it looks and sounds like repentant language to me, doesn't it? That sounds like something I might say in a prayer of repentance. It sounds like it's from the heart. But we know from God's reaction to it in verses 4, 5, and 6 that what they are saying is not from the heart. God talks about their love as clouds and dew, fleeting, transient, insubstantial. They wanted the consequences of their sin to be taken away fast, it seems. Two or three days. I'll give God two or three days to relieve this pain I'm in. God saw them, what they were doing, as going through the motions of religion. They were gaining their righteousness through sacrifices and burnt offerings. Through the law. Not through a broken and contrite heart. And that's what Jesus, that's what the Hosea says and Jesus means when he quotes this in verse 6 where it says, I desire steadfast love or mercy, not sacrifice. See, the people in Hosea's day were just like the Pharisees standing outside Matthew's house. They thought they were already righteous. They thought they were good. They were doing the things that religion requires them to do. So I'm good. They didn't think they were sick. Michael Green in his commentary writes this, The word Pharisee means separated ones, proud that they stand out from the crowd and are good people. But there's no room for Pharisees in the kingdom of God, he says. Such people do not see their need of a doctor, though they harbor germs the same of the same fatal disease of sin which they condemn in its cruder forms in others. Such an attitude stinks in God's nostrils, he says. The kingdom is a one-class society. They realize they're sinners. And those who think they are okay never really get close to Jesus. Those who think that they're they're good people never get close to Jesus. 
Their self-righteousness keeps them at a distance from their Savior. As Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician. Why go to a doctor when you think you're okay? When you're feeling okay, you do not go to a doctor. It's only when you start feeling, I better get that looked at. That's why we're called to go and tell people, brothers and sisters, because the world does not know it is sick. Your friends and family who don't know Jesus, they don't know that they are sick. They don't realize it. There's a newscaster called Victoria Price. She's a reporter for NBC. She received an interesting email from a visitor after a telecast one night. The viewer wrote that she was concerned while watching the the, the video cast of a lump on Victoria's neck. And she implored her to go have it looked at. Price did. And she found out that she had cancer. Had it removed. This woman saved her life. And she wrote her an email back after the whole event. She said, Had I never received that email, I would never have called my doctor. The cancer would have continued to spread. It's a scary and humbling thought. I will forever be grateful to the woman who went out of her way to email me, a total stranger. She had zero obligation to, but did it anyway. And that's who you and I are. People who have zero obligation to tell anybody that they're sinful. But we're called to. Because we know that they're sick. And they don't know that they're sick. When you tell a person that you might have cancer or that, that you might be, have, be a sinful person, nobody likes to hear that. Nobody looks at you and goes, oh, thank you. Thank you for that. Nobody likes to hear that. You might even get harsh reactions to that. But the truth is that we all have that disease. And some of you will realize and listen that they have a lump called sin. And that's the second kind of person represented in this narrative. People that realize that they have a lump called sin. That's why Matthew wrote himself into this narrative. The author wrote himself in. Matthew is, is juxtapositioning himself with the Pharisees. He wants us to see that contrast. Jesus calls him to follow and he leaves everything instantly. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, when I read that about Peter and Andrew, when I read that about Philip and all the other disciples, that Jesus just says, follow me and they follow, my mind starts going, what, what else did Jesus say? What, what more could he have revealed that would cause them to just get up and leave? When, I mean, when I say that to almost anybody, they don't do that. But Jesus radically changes lives. How much did Matthew know about Jesus? That's what I thought. Maybe he knew a lot. 
how could Matthew leave such a lucrative job, as I said earlier? Why did he leave so suddenly? Did it really happen in just two words? I mean, what my mind goes to is the how. But that's not Matthew's point at all in writing about his conversion. He doesn't want us to understand the how that he was converted, but who he was when he was converted. He was a tax collector. Tax collectors were considered greedy, treacherous, double-crossing people. They collaborated with the Roman oppressors, so they were hated for it. They took advantage of their own people and extorted money from them. They preyed on the impoverished. Their greed drove them to take advantage of their brothers and sisters. They really operated like the local mafia at the time. And that is Matthew, the picture of depravity. He writes himself into the story to show who Jesus came to save. A person like that. People who know they're sinners. People who know they need healing. People who need a great physician. You know, every great artist in years gone by, I don't know so much today, but every great artist in years gone by would always do their painting of the crucifixion. It was kind of like a rite of passage for any, any great artist. So you have people like Raphael and Rubens and Bellini and De Silva and Michelangelo and the list goes on and on doing their crucifixion. Even in the 20th century, I remember my mother had, uh, uh, who, who was it? Salvador Dali's uh, crucifixion, a modern rendition of it hanging on our wall. But Rembrandt did his in a kind of a unique way. It's called the raising of the cross. In this, his rendition, we see Jesus nailed to the cross and, and he's being pulled up off the ground and all the typical characters are there. You have the soldiers and the crowd of mockers and women We might even be tempted to see the religious leader on the horse as the main character. But no. Rembrandt wanted our eyes to be drawn to one person. Perhaps your eyes are being drawn there right now. At the foot of the cross, there's someone unexpected. A self-portrait. That's Rembrandt. Rembrandt included himself at the foot of the cross. He included himself to, as if to say, I share in the guilt of Jesus' crucifixion. I'm a sinner along with everyone else. It was my sin that caused his death. I admit it. That's what he's saying there. I admit it. Those are the types of people that want a house call from Jesus. Those are the type of people that Jesus heals. Those who say, I'm a sinner. I need healing. I need forgiveness. Rembrandt painted himself 
into his painting. Matthew wrote himself into his story. Until you do the same, you stand at a distance from the Savior. You're out in the snowstorm like the geese dying. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who know they are sick do. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And again, Spirit, we simply petition you to use it on our hearts, to refine our minds by it, so that we will live more holy in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.